Whether it's the war in Ukraine, the war in Israel, the House Speaker race, or any of a zillion controversial topics, everyone has an opinion. As a federal employee, can you express your opinion out loud and not get fired for it? Federal Drive host Tom Temin got advice for this and a few other matters from federal employment attorney John Mahoney. This question, I guess, is coming up in a lot of offices. It's not exactly a Hatch Act issue, but if you loudly express an opinion, and Lord knows there's some controversial opinions going around, what what uh, can feds do and what should they not do? Well, they should not be engaging in political speech at work. That's the bottom line. That's the easy answer, because it does approach a hatch act violation if they are found to be engaging in partisan political activity while being paid by the United States to be an employee. Well, if it's say, you know, this side is right or that side is right in a particular conflict, that's considered political, do you think? Depends on the context. Obviously, people can express their views on issues of national importance, for sure. But if it's labeled, you know, in a partisan way, that can get people in trouble. And it's certainly something to avoid, both in the office while at work and also on social media. If you're a federal employee, that is an area where feds are are meeting a lot of problems with disciplinary actions for statements made on social media pages. Yeah, and I guess extremist type of views or views that are anti one group or another, that could be taken as out of bounds also, I imagine. Correct. It's definitely an area that people need to be, you know, watchful of. And certainly, you know, they can face Hatch Act violations. They can face conduct on becoming a federal employee allegations that stem from social media posts, whether they be political or just critical of their supervisors, et cetera. So it's something that feds need to be aware of and and be careful not to get in the mix of. But they could be facing disciplinary action, separation or leave or even firing, I guess, if if, uh, they go too far. Sure. Now, the way it works, obviously, if we're talking about a tenured federal employee, a permanent career status federal employee, if they if their agency believes that they've engaged in some kind of misconduct, Typically, there is some type of investigation, whether it's an inspector general investigation, a management investigation. You know, some agencies have office OPRs, Office of Professional Responsibility, a lot of the law enforcement agencies do. So there's typically an investigation that the agencies will engage in. Traditionally, under the Privacy Act, they were supposed to come to the subject of the investigation to the greatest extent practicable. The statute still says that. But unfortunately, that that has been, you know, somewhat gutted by court decisions. So effectively, at this point, the state of the law is as long as the agencies eventually come to the subject and present the allegations to them and give them an opportunity to respond orally and in writing to any written proposed disciplinary action, that's what the due process requirement is. They have to be given written notice of the allegations, an opportunity to respond orally and in writing, and a written decision. And if the decision leads to a suspension of 15 calendar days or worse, demotion in grade or removal, most federal employees can file an appeal with the Merit System Protection Board. Short of 15 calendar days, they either have to file a grievance or an Office of Special Counsel complaint or an EEO complaint. Right. So the best thing is not to get into a situation like that in the first place, fair to say. Exactly. Yep. Definitely better to avoid problems than try to fight your way out of the bag once you're in it. We're speaking with federal employment attorney John Mahoney of Washington. And suppose a furlough 
should happen as a result of a federal government lapse in funding, which people are worried about now between now and November 15th, uh, November 17th, when the current Mm -hmm. continuing resolution runs out. Any change in the rules for speech and posting if you're on furlough? Well, still not a good idea to engage in, you know, political speech if you're a federal employee, especially if you're publishing it on social media. It can be used, you know, even if it doesn't doesn't rise to the level of a Hatch Act violation, it could be considered conduct on becoming a federal employee. So it's definitely something to avoid. You know, obviously, a lot of, you know, federal employees generally are concerned about the potential shutdown. You know, we've had five major shutdowns since I've been doing this for a living. They can result in MSPB appeals over the furloughs if they're 30, you know, less than 30 days at length. That's not a very good thing to appeal. Ultimately, the chances of success are pretty limited there unless there's a proven prohibited personnel practice involved. So I wouldn't recommend federal employees file MSPB appeals over furloughs. Eventually, hopefully, if um, if the budgets are ultimately passed and uh, people go back to work, they should be able to get back pay for the furlough period that they were off on government shutdown. So, you know, eventually Congress will get their act together and, and pay back pay to the people who have been furloughed. Obviously, the essential government employees are going to have to work through the shutdown if there is one and not get paid until ultimately a budget is passed. So it's a it's a difficult period for federal employees and they're sort of used as a pawn in the political struggles on the Hill. And it really does impact people's lives if they lose you know 30 days pay and they don't get it back for 90 days or thereafter. That's a lot of money. And if people engage in speech that's unbecoming during a furlough, perhaps it's because they're bored and they need work while they're not working. And so maybe go over what you can do for employment, alternative employment, while you're on furlough that will protect your federal position and that doesn't present a conflict of interest. What kinds of work can people do? Yeah, so people need to get you know outside employment authorization from their principal employing agency before they launch into, you know, outside work of any kind. So it does become difficult oftentimes, depending on what type of job the employee has, if it's somewhat sensitive or cleared or law enforcement in nature, agencies typically don't allow those people to have outside employment. If the agency is presented with the option of of the employee working outside employment, then that becomes a difficult question is what happens when the furlough is over and Congress gives people the back pay and they've earned money in the interim on the outside, do they have to pay back? Is it mitigated or or reduced by the amount of pay they earned in the private sector? So it gets complicated in terms of outside employment. Yeah, I mean, outside employment in your field, say you're an attorney or something for the Justice Department and you work for a law firm or something, that could be a problem. But what if you go to work for Home Depot just to do something on weekdays and they pay you by the hour? Yeah, generally the best approach is for the employee to go to their agency and seek authorization for the outside employment. I don't see a problem with someone working at Home Depot if they're, you know, a federal employee. But there are political issues involved with, you know, lobbying by outside corporations to the government and that could create conflicts of interest. So it's very important that prior to starting the outside employment position that the employees seek and obtain approval by their federal agency to do that. 
those approvals then are not blanket approvals for simply working outside the agency, but they are required specifically for each particular external position you might take? Yeah, that is the best approach. You don't want to accidentally fall into a situation where you're securing outside payment while you're supposed to be an employee of the federal government or, or potentially using government equipment or time or you know resources to aid the outside employment. So it gets a little tricky. The best approach is to bring it to your supervisors, the idea of the outside employment, and have it cleared by the ethics people within the agency before you start the job. And sometimes people are furloughed, in their view, for something other than a shutdown. What do you do if you're furloughed and you believe it was a form of retaliation or you're being discriminated against? Then what? Sure. Yeah, no, I've, I've handled cases like that. I represented I won't name the name of the group, but anyway, I, I represented a case before the court, the court of appeals for the federal circuit on the furloughs last government shutdown, and the result is that unless the person can prove a prohibited personnel practice under 5 U.S.C. 2302B, generally furloughs are not particularly targeted at any one particular federal employee. They apply across the board to people who are non-essential, so it's a very hard case to prove that when you know the vast majority of federal employees are furloughed due to a shutdown, that this one particular employee was actually furloughed for a prohibited personnel practice reason. It's a very difficult case to win. Yeah, because you have to do that proof, and that's paperwork and time. I mean, how long does it take sometimes? It's, these can be months-long can processes. Years. Yeah, and MSCB appeal from front to back through a hearing and a petition for review can take literally years. Yeah, wow. So you really have to have persistence and you want the job badly or it becomes a matter of maybe a sense of justice that makes people pursue so long? Yeah, certainly federal employees have a strong sense of justice. That's why they're in this business uh, of public service. So they do tend to want to die on the stake for uh, particular justice positions that they take on things. But you got to be smart. You know, you got to be cost effective and efficient in how you decide to handle prohibited personnel practice cases. Otherwise, they can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and take years to litigate. Attorney John Mahoney specializes in federal employment issues. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. 
and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply That's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, Makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role 
with a intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going? Um, Because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. 
Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.